We continue in the series, Faith in the Fire, as we look at 1 Peter. In chapter 1, the first sermon was dealing with the fact that we're born again to a living hope. In chapter 2, talks about the fact that we're called to be holy. Chapter 2 also has a section where Peter admonishes believers as citizens and countries to submit to every human institution i.e. the government. He then addresses household servants in the church and he admonishes them to be submissive to their masters. And today, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we'll be looking at, at the section where Peter first instructs his wife, the wives to be submissive to their husband. And we'll look at, what does that look like? Submission within the husband and wife relationship. Then, secondly, we'll be looking at his instruction to the husbands to live considerately and in an understanding way to their wives. And finally, in verses 8 through 12, Peter says to all the church, to all the congregation, be, be submissive to each other. As he says, have unity and sympathy and tenderness of heart and humility. So in other words, submit to each other and serve. Submission. It's a broad term. It carries with it different connotations. It's unique in each relationship and looks very different in each relationship. Peter begins this section instructing the wives by using the term likewise which means, in a similar way, he's referring back to the passage where he talked about the, the servants or slaves submitting. And he says that they're to, in a, in a similar way, to submit. Now, he could have used a stronger term. He could have used a term that said that wives are to submit um, in the same way. But he didn't say that. He could have used a little bit stronger term and said that wives are to submit in the same way, or rather in every way, uh, be similar. But he used the word that says similar, just similar, not exact, not uh, exactly in, in these various ways. Submission. Well, it has its unique expressions, but it also has its unique questions and concerns. Today, in some circles, because of abuse and misuse of, of Submission and headship, it seems like submission maybe has a bad reputation. Simple people have misused it and have caused pain and hurt. And so people want to do away with it. Or at least some want to change the definition of submission. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about computers and the internet. Computers are great, and the internet can be very helpful, right? And I've thought, how would it have been for me, growing up, to be able to have access to computers and, and internet? So much good stuff. And yet, we're all aware of the abuse of the internet. But some great things. Often in the office, I'm talking with people, and they name all these websites that are great for marriage. All these resources, all these conferences. But over the years, as I've counseled at Good News and counseled with people outside of the church, 
I'm aware of so many men who have fallen into pornography and can't seem to get away from it because of, of the internet. Financially, the internet is, can be wonderful. It's allowed so much in the whole banking area. Direct deposit, online banking, ordering books from Amazon, getting them in two days. And yet, we constantly hear about people who have, have been devastated because their IDs were stolen. Well, the internet is also great for research papers. I have watched my sons, Zachary and Jared, do research papers. Now, kids, teenagers, when I grew up, we didn't even have computers. We didn't have internet. So if I made mistakes, I had to go back and correct it with whiteout. But watch Zachary and Jared and others, and sure, they go to libraries and they get books, they bring them home. But maybe sometimes as they're doing their research, they say, you know what, this looks a little weak. And what do they do? They go to the internet and they find great information on the subject. Boy, I wish I'd had that. And yet, we're all aware, over and over, young kids and teenagers have been lured into abusive sexual situations where there's been abuse and and, and rape. Today, because of the internet, we can download music. We can really just with a click of the keyboard download movies through Netflix and watch them on TV. Who thought it? Who thought it? The internet's great, but it has its problems. Because of that, I, I compare, in, again, in a similar way, but of course different, submission is biblical. It has its problems. People want to do away with it or redefine it because of the problems. I wonder how many of these people who want to do away with the, the definition of, of submission, how many of them would be willing to do away with the internet because of the abuses and the problems it causes? You see, they want to redefine submission to mean ah, to be thoughtful and considerate, to, to act in love, but that's not the legitimate definition. It always means, it implies, a relationship of submission to an authority. And we looked, we saw earlier where slaves submitted to masters. Last week we talked about children submitting to, to parents. In the Bible, over and over we see the word submission used and we see demons being subject to the disciples or the universe being subject to Jesus Christ. In First Peter we see angels and demons being subject to Jesus Christ. Christians being subject to God. And none of these relations are ever, they're never reversed. The government doesn't submit to citizens, nor do disciples to demons, or God to Christians. So if you look at this passage today, I want us to look, what does this mean? This submission. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, as we look at 
this biblical principle is Lord of, of submission and later on headship. Father, we ask that you would lead us and guide us. And Father, that we might have a clear picture of what it means. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We had the passage read earlier, so I'll, I'll move on from that. Peter first gives the wife three instructions. First, she's to be submissive to her husband. Well, as I, as I think about this, I just thought, there's so much, so many misconceptions about what submission is that I thought I would list a few of them for you. First of all, submission is not based on the superiority of the husband or the inferiority of the, the wife. The whole concept of the helper, where God made Adam and then he made Eve as her helper. Some people say, well, nah, that's inferior. But that very word is used of God as he is the helper of mankind. Secondly, submission doesn't mean that a wife is obligated to follow a husband and to sin. The Bible is clear that we obey, man, obey God and not man. Submission doesn't mean giving up independent thinking. And Peter made this very clear. He, he spoke to the women directly, to the wives. He knew that they could understand. He knew that they had made a decision already to be there. Submission doesn't remove independent thinking. It doesn't mean that a wife gives in in every situation, on every demand to her husband. We see this in, in so many passages in the Bible. Queen Esther, as she was interacting with, with uh, King Xerxes, did not do what she should have done if she were uh, following protocol. Uh, if we remember the whole situation with, with King, or he wasn't King yet, but David, as he was getting ready to go in and kill Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was a very wise woman. She went against everything that he said in order to save his life. He eventually died. But the point is, submission does not mean that wives give in. It doesn't mean being submissive. I think about Proverbs 31. This wife who goes out and buys property and sells things and she's created has a vineyard that she uh, is in charge of. Submission does not mean being passive and it doesn't mean, mean being silent. The wife should confront and, and criticize in a, in, a, in a good sense um, when it's necessary. The real meaning of submission is the disposition to honor and affirm a husband's authority an inclination to yield to his leadership. I like John Piper and his definition. He says, the mission is an attitude that says, I'd delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you're passive. And I have to make sure the family works. But the attitude of the Christian submission also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and want to take me with you. You know I can't do that. I have no desire to resist you. On the contrary, I flourish most when I can respond creatively and joyfully to your lead, but I can't in this situation. 
Our key verse as we look at submission and, and the whole relationship between husband and wife is Ephesians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. It says, Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The model of Christ's love for the church and his, uh, in the church's submission to Christ is the model that, that marriage is built on. And it includes a resolve on the part of, of one to commit their life entirely and be committed to that person for the good in every decision that they make. Peter continues his instructions to the wife in verses 1 and 2, saying that, that wives are to be pure and to be reverent. He says, wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won without words by the behavior of their wives when they see your purity and your reverence in your lives. Peter's advice here has two things, a don't and a do. The don't is not explicit there, but I think it says don't nag. Don't nag as you seek to share Christ. I'm sure he's focused on some, some people, some women who were wanting their husband to come to Christ. And over and over they were sharing with him. He says, don't nag. There comes a time when all you can do is live your life in a reverent and chaste way. Nagging pushes people away. And yet when God changes lives, sometimes we can't Stop talking about what Christ has done for us. Well, Peter, Peter continues on. He says, don't nag, but, but do live a modest and chaste life. So he's saying if your husband doesn't come to Christ, just live a godly life before him. Reverence there means just a genuine love for the Lord. This, this principle, I think, applies not just for husband and wives, but for everybody. I, I, I still remember when I came to Christ 30-something years ago. I came to Christ out of drugs and alcohol. And I had family members who were maybe not that off as I was, but they were close. When I came to Christ, he turned my life around. He gave me hope. He gave me a new heart. I turned from drugs and from alcohol, from immorality, and I turned to the Lord. I watched my brothers and sisters, and I shared with them. I, got, I bought Christian music, and I played it at gatherings. And some of my family came to Christ. I think there were 10 or 11 people within my immediate family, like brothers and sisters and mom and, and aunt, who came to Christ. Eleven. And yet there were some who didn't. And I longed for them to know Christ. And it seems like every situation that came up, I'd share, I'd share the gospel. I'd share, well, you know, Roger, you need to do this. Or, James, this is the answer. 
later on. Actually, it took place when my brother Steve died. I was talking to my brother Jimmy, and he said, Ralph, he says, way back when you came to Christ, he said, you pressured me. You pressured me. I felt like a knife going in my back because that was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted them to know Jesus Christ. But undoubtedly, I was nagging. I stopped. Many, if not all of them, have come to Christ now. Wives, Peter says, if your husband doesn't know Christ, win him to Christ without words. Win him to Christ by your chaste and pure life. Well, after instructing the wives to submit to their husbands and to be chaste and to be modest, Peter instructs the wife to focus on inward beauty. Proverbs 31, 30 says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Actress Haley Berry, who was People Magazine's uh, one of the top 50 most beautiful women uh, in one year, um, said this about uh, beauty. Beauty? Let me tell you something about it. Being thought of as a beautiful woman has spared me nothing, nothing in life, nothing in heartache, nothing in trouble. Love has been difficult. Beauty is essentially meaningless and is always transitory. Women, I think it's easy to look at these beautiful women and say, this is how I need to be. And yet, I think Haley said it so well. Exterior beauty is fleeing. Well, Peter says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Think of the beauty that we often look at and then compare it to what God's word says about that inner beauty that God says we need. And he says it's unfading, unfading beauty. Um, And the important thing is that gentle spirit. Gentle means not pushy, not demanding my own way, not insistent on my own rights. I want to clarify something just in case. This passage does not mean that women can't wear jewelry. It doesn't mean that women can't wear their hair braided. Because if they did, they couldn't wear clothes either. Wear your clothes. The focus, the focus is not so much on being able to, to do those things, but it's the, the, the continued focus on that. The contemporary English version says, don't depend on things like fancy hairdos or gold jewelry or expensive clothes to make you look beautiful. Be beautiful in your heart by being gentle and quiet 
this kind of beauty will last. And God considers it very special. I love how Peter uses the word unfading or imperishable. You know, I don't know whether women still do it, but I remember years ago, my sisters and mom would get perms. The thing about perms or permanence was what? They're not permanent. They don't last. They last, what, two months maybe? We go buy clothes. And some of us, they began getting tied in the waist, so we got to throw them away. Some of us, their style changes and got to get rid of them. But everything eventually wears out or goes out of style. And yet, Peter says that inward beauty, that gentle, quiet spirit, that, that is beauty. And that's the way we win people to Christ. Issues of women's magazines often feature attractive young women, usually very thin, wearing the latest fashions. And they make us think that this is what we have to do as women. According to the Chicago Tribune, inner beauty may not be enough these days. An article uh, entitled, When Inner Beauty Simply Isn't Enough, the author reports the growing popularity of plastic surgery to improve the personal appearance. It says, the nip and tuck trend is spreading like wrinkles and waistlines. I love that. The nip and tuck trend is spreading like wrinkles and waistlines in the U.S. According to a report in February of 2008 of Americans, 80% of Americans says, I would be ashamed to have have people know that I had plastic surgery for cosmetic reasons. In 2007, reports show that women had 10.6 million cosmetic procedures. 10.6 million. And that was 91% of cosmetic surgery procedures. And men had 1 million, or 9%. Well, after having instructed the wives to submit and to live pure and chaste lives, and to focus on that inward beauty, Peter then briefly, but very forcefully, talks to the husband and instructs him. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Some versions say, uh, understanding ways, some say considerate. So how is a man to live a considerate life? How do I live a considerate life before my wife, Chris? What is considerate leadership? Living considerately really literally means living together according to knowledge. Living together according to knowledge. In an understanding way. And knowledge may include anything in reference to the husband-wife relationship, it could be, it could include um, God's purposes and principles on marriage. It could be the wife's desires and goals, frustrations, her strengths and weaknesses, uh, her physical, emotional, and spiritual realm. I still remember when Chris and I got married about 28 years ago. 
I thought I knew press. And I knew her. But I learned a lot more about press as the years have gone along. I found out that she's a lot sweeter than I thought she was. I found out that she puts up with a lot. I found out she's a great cook. I found out that she's sensitive. I found out a lot of things about Chris, and, and I know now things I didn't know when I married Chris back in 1983. I love Chris more today than I loved her in 83. And I know her so much better. Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way. Get to know her. Know her, her loves and her dislikes. Know what encourages her. Well, reasons we should be considerate, men, in our leadership. It says, show honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you. First thing is, and you may not even know this, men and women are different. Men and women are different. It says that the wife is a weaker vessel. Treat them with respect. And the weaker vessel, it, it just simply means that, generally speaking, women tend to be weaker than men physically. We all know there are some women who are strong. We know that there are some men who are very weak. But just generally speaking, I often hear women playfully and very lovingly talking about men and how sometimes we might be stubborn or how we might not do certain things the way they think we should. And I do hear men doing the same thing toward women, always lovingly. But I'll never forget my first year that I was program coordinator at Inner City Impact, and we had 25 or 30 some missionaries coming in. And uh, probably most of them were women. And some would come and they'd cry. They'd cry. They'd come to my office almost every day, it seems like, crying. I was just, and I just got married. Just married in August, and this happened, I think, in September. Soon afterwards, anyway. But I learned, I learned that women are so very different. And so we should be considerate in our leadership, men, because women are different, and we need to know that they're weaker. Secondly, we should be considerate because women are our equals. Women are our equals. It says that, that we have to show honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs, or some say co-heirs, uh, in Christ with you we should be considerate and understanding because we're equals. Third, when looking at considerate leadership, the rewards. The passage says, if, we, if you do this, if we consider it, then your prayers may not be hindered. Your prayers may not be hindered. First Peter, later on, 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who will do evil. If we're not in a right relationship with our wife, our prayers can be hindered, men. Good, strong reason to be considerate in our leadership. We looked earlier about that submission and what it is and what it's not. 
I thought it would be good to look at headship and leadership for the man. Husbands are never commanded to rule their wives, but to love them. And yet, if you listen to some men talk about headship and leadership, they think that they're supposed to command. The Bible never says, Husbands, make sure that your wives submit to you. And it doesn't say, Men, husbands, exercise headship and authority. The implication is clear there that headship is a responsibility to love our wives as Christ loved the church and to be the leader. Yes, we are the leader in the home, the head. John Piper says, Submission is not slavish, it's not coerced, it's not cowering, but it's the way, uh, it should be the way that Christ uh, wants the church to respond to him lovingly. Headship. Third, headship is not the power of a superior over an inferior. I think we've touched on that already today. So if it's not any of these things, what is it? What is the essence of headship or of leadership? It's more a responsibility than a right. When men begin saying that I am the head and you, I'm owed this, it can be an authoritarian mindset where control takes place. Secondly, headship is the authority to serve. Headship is the authority to serve. John Stott says, if headship means power in any sense, then it's the power to care and not brush. It's the power to serve, not to dominate. And in all of this standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. Third, headship is the opportunity to lead. Christ led the disciples. He was a role model for them. He taught them. He delegated to them. Fourth, headship involves gentleness and sensitivity. Colossians 3 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Fifth, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as we love and care for our own selves. Going back again to Ephesians 5 there. And sixth, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as Christ loves and cares for the church. Because again, that's our role model according to Ephesians 5. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, who are psychologists and writers of books, said this about submission and about headship. We have never seen a submission problem that didn't have a controlling husband at its root. Scott McKnight, who is a prophet at Norfolk, quotes Marie Fortune at Full Seminary. She says, between three and six million women each year are victims of physical violence in the home. Between three and six million women are victims. And probably the most pervasive form of men using violence against women is the emotional and mental level. Husbands intimidating, threatening, manipulating their wives in countless ways. And I've seen it in, in, in so many different ways. And acts of violence against wives are often followed by, by feelings of remorse and guilt by the, the husband. 
and apologies, saying things that are going to get better. But over the last 20 years, as I've counseled and worked in ministry, it seems like that the man will only change from the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, when he's convicted that his wife will no longer tolerate the abuse. So when I counsel with couples where there's a situation, I counsel the wife to separate. Not divorce, but to separate. Because emotional, physical abuse is no place in the home. Total separation is the only way. And it's sad that that's the only form of communication that seems to work for an abusive husband. Some of you know my sister Kathy either took her life or was murdered by her husband some 15 years ago. Kathy was a sweet lady. She was a believer. And I never forget the night everything happened. We're getting ready to celebrate my dad's 80th birthday the next day. And we got word that she had died either from murder or from taking her life. I never forget her oldest daughter, who was 19 and 20, when she heard that her mom had taken her life, she says, you did it, Dad. You did it. Women, I don't want any of you to remain in an abusive situation where there's physical abuse, where there's emotional abuse, There's no place for marriage, for that in marriage. Well, finally, after giving instructions to uh, the husband and the wife, Peter then addresses the church in general. And he says, finally, which is basically summing things up, he says, to all of you Christians, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Live or love, rather, as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because of this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. But the general responsibility for, for every Christian is here, and we'll, we'll just look at it real briefly, but it's, it's really a summary of what we've already been talking about the last several weeks. Here it says, begin with the right attitude. Be live in harmony. Be sympathetic. Love each other in Christ as brothers. Be kind-hearted. Like the word kind-hearted there literally means feel generous in your heart toward each other. Be humble in spirit. Then he talks about a right response in the midst of being mistreated, which is a lot of the theme here of uh, of First Peter's suffering. It says not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for that very purpose. You know, sometimes when someone does something to us, our first response is to respond back, right? <clears throat> the other day I was running, I just got through uh, jogging, and I was on the, on the south corner of uh, California and, and North Avenue, getting ready to go, and this car just came within inches of me and pulled in to grab a newspaper. And my response at that point 
was not very loving. It's all in my mind. I want to say, you jerk. Why do you do that? Our response in midst of being mistreated, in the midst of life, should be such that we not return evil for evil or insult for insult. And it's from that whole inner transformation in verse, verses 8 there, verse 8, that we're able to give a blessing back. The third, I think we see here, is the right standard. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. The Declaration of Independence says, declares that life and liberty and pursuit of happiness is for each of us. Of course, today our culture takes that out of context. And what do we do? We pursue everything that is not eternal. Whether it's cars, money, vacations, fine clothes, um, sex, drugs. Ernest Hemingway was a personification of this. You know, he wrote... Um, the old man in the sea, the sun also rises, and many other. And because he had the money, he lived a lifestyle involved um, in illicit sex. He had no respect for biblical principles. He had no respect for tradition, traditional family. And um, he had celebrity parties. He did all these various things. And then he took his life by shooting himself in the head. King Solomon of course, sought the good life. He had palaces and winds and chariots and horses and gold and silver and many beautiful women. And he said, though, so I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything was futile and striving after the wind. We have the good life as we walk with God, as we live for him. Finally, here we see the right incentive. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're seeing today that wives are to be submissive. We talked about what that means. And they're to be chaste and to be reverent. And they're to win the unsaved husband to Christ by not saying a word, but just living a godly life, a holy life. We've seen that men, husbands, are to live in an understanding way. We've seen that the church is to submit to each other out of love. My question as we close is, men, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? and died for her? Are you living a considerate, understanding way? Do you honor her? And wives, do you have an attitude of submission and respect for your husband? In church, the body of Christ, are we submitting to each other? Are we loving each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there harmony? Is there blessing? Are we turning a cheek and not giving evil for evil or insult for insult. Well, let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your words from First Peter.